good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. So we're turning tonight to Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're going to read from the verse the number 5. And then the Levites, and Jeshua, and Kadmiel, and Bani, Hash, Abniah, and Sherebiah, Odijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abraham, and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and givest him the name of Abraham, and findest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous." And did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heardst their cry by the Red Sea, and showed signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, and on all his servants, and on all the people of his land. For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name, as it is this day. Amen. We'll just end reading there, and say we'll come back to uh, these verses as we make our way through our study tonight. Under Nehemiah, the nation is experiencing renewal. And that renewal is taking in a number of forms. It is social in part. There is a, a gathering together of the people under godly government and a social level. There's an economic renewal in, in the prosperity that will result in light of their gathering together and the reestablishing of Jerusalem and the land. But most important of all, there is clearly spiritual renewal in view in this book. We know the last time the, the signs of spiritual renewal. These signs are true in every realm of redemptive history, biblical and in the history beyond the Bible. True signs in all true awakenings. There is always in a true awakening of God, there's always a hunger for the word. If there is no hunger for the word, then it is not a true awakening. Alongside that, there will always be a deep sorrow for sin. And alongside these things, so alongside the hunger for the word, and alongside this deep sorrow for sin, there is always a burden in prayer. And again, sometimes we, we get the order wrong. Often, in the writing of revivals and awakenings, the author will put the beginning of the revival at the feet of those who sought the Lord in prayer. As if prayer was the means whereby God brought about revival. Revival begins when God sets his people praying. And the early prayer meetings of revival, they are the birth pangs of true revival. The revival's already begun as the people set themselves to pray. 
And so I think it is here when you see the hunger for the word of Nehemiah chapter 8, the sorrow for sin in Nehemiah 9, and now this prolonged prayer. These things all come together in true and genuine spiritual renewal. The petition in the prayer occurs way down in verse number 32. And in that petition, you will see the words there, Now therefore our God, and then down through the verse, Let not all the trouble seem little before thee. There is a petition. The prayer is a prayer of confession. And out of that confession, there is a prayer for God to look upon them in their distress. They've confessed their sins. They acknowledge that both their forefathers and themselves have been guilty of sin in in many forms. But as they reflect upon their return to the land from captivity, they realize that they're living once more in the promised land, but they're living in bondage. They're living as servants. That's what verse number 36 is saying. Behold, we are servants this day. And for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And what they're saying is, we're not enjoying the full blessing. We're not enjoying the fullness of the blessing that you promised to us in the covenant. We're in the land, but we're serving others in the land. We're not enjoying the fruit of it ourselves. And it yields, verse 37, it yieldeth much increase unto the kings, whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. And in light of that distress and that affliction, they then pray back again in verse number 32, let not all the trouble seem little before thee. In essence, they're asking God to take heed of their situation. All of our afflictions could well be looked upon as little in the eyes of God. It's an understandable consideration when we come to pray. You may have a particular burden in your life. And you know, in light of God's sovereign control over the nations, the God who's controlling Syria and China and Russia and North America, the God who's controlling all of these nations, my, my situation may seem but a little thing. And so it's not unreasonable for us to come to God and say, let not all this trouble seem little before thee. In other words, they're praying that God would take their situation upon his heart as it were. Uh, God would intervene and deal with this situation. The prayer itself, of course, fits uniquely into redemptive history in Nehemiah's time. It's, it's not a prayer that, uh, that we can directly pray for ourselves. We, we are not a theocracy under God. We are a secular nation. As a church, yes, we can, we can take it upon ourselves as a church. But even there, there are some distinctives and differences in the prayer. But there's a principle here, isn't there? A principle for, for God to take notice of the afflictions of his people. And that prayer, we can always pray. We can always ask God to notice us because he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have a, a sympathetic high priest, a man in the glory who's willing to hear the prayers of his people and he's willing to step in and give them grace and time of need. That's our God. He's, he's willing to take heed to these prayers. And therefore, as a church and as individuals or as families, 
There is much to encourage us in this portion of Scripture regarding the practice of prayer. What's going to encourage you to keep on praying? Is it a case that we should bring guilt upon the people? You know, we, we are so small because you're not praying properly. Is that what encourages proper believing prayer? Or is true prayer not encouraged and provoked by our right view of God in the gospel? And that if we rightly understand God and rightly reflect upon unchanging God, then that itself will draw out of our souls true believing and fervent prayer. It is your view of God that dictates how you are in the place of prayer. How will you ever get a heart to be in the place of prayer and want to be here? It will only come when you have a right view of God and God's relationship to his people and the world around. And so this survey of history that begins in verse number 5 and as it goes all the way through to the petition of verse number 32, there is this survey of the history of the people of God. And that survey, it redounds to the glory of God. It's a survey in which God is the central subject. And it's how God has related to his people. And it's that survey of God's dealings with people that then provokes and leads to the fervent believing prayer with which a chapter ends. And so let's think about this matter of the unchanging God in this survey. And note to begin with, we see a God of authority over creation. Verse number five, the Levites are coming and they're leading in prayer. And they're saying, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. They're engaging in worship. They are adoring the name of God. And this is, this is true worship. It's a reflection on the, the glory of God. Blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. There's reverence here. There's a, a sense of the glory of God that is beating within their hearts. And that, that declaration of God's glory arises in turn out of the consideration of God's work in creation. Verse number six. Thou, even thou art Lord alone. The singularity of this glorious Lord. And you'll see the word Lord there is in uh, cap letters in our authorized. It's referring to Jehovah, the covenant keeping God. This one God of Israel. I am that I am. Not the God of the Egyptians. Not the God of the Amorites. But the God of Israel is the one true and living God. And that God alone is the God who made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all. There's a declaration of God's work in creation. In the Old Testament, creation is often used in prayer to remind the people of God's power, his strong right arm. And that part is, is seen here in, in like both of the aspects of power that are in the Word of God. There is the power of ability and there is the power of authority. Ability is seen here in the making of heaven, the heaven of heavens and all the rest. Seen in creative power. Seen also in providential power. Thou preservest them all. The God that made the world is the God that sustains the world. We are 
sitting here right now because God preserves his creation. His authority is seen here. The host of heaven, verse 6 at the end of the verse, the host of heaven worshipeth thee. He alone is the Lord. He alone is the true and living God. He is sovereign. He is powerful in ability and in authority. We must always remind ourselves of the importance of our right view of creation. But what happened in churches back in the early part of the 1900s, as Darwinian thought began to take uh, some sort of place, even Christian thought, what happened in the churches was a removal of fervent praying. The impact of liberalism was in part the lessening of the place of prayer. That's what happens. If you don't believe in a God who's able, if you don't believe in a God who's authority, then there is no need to pray. It is a conviction of God's ability and authority to intervene and to overrule that stimulates true prayer. And thus continually guard yourself from believing the errors of the devil, the lies of the evil one that would tell you anything less than that the one true and living God is the maker of all things and the sustainer of all things. That conviction will enable you to pray. There's also in the second place the God who sovereignly makes covenant. So you have the authority over creation, but then in verse 7 and following, you have this making of covenant with the Abraham. Verse number 7, Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abraham. Abraham, of course, who is the father of the nation. Um, when you look at uh, the Old Testament history, God's power is encouraged by thinking upon creation, and God's grace is taught by thinking upon Abraham. When Abraham's invoked in prayer, it is often to remind the people of God's grace in making covenant. So whenever the psalmist refers to creation, it is that you believe in the power of God. And when the psalmist and others refer to Abraham, it is that you believe in the sovereign, gracious, covenantal dealings of God with his people. God dealing with Abraham is a template for all believers. We'll see that shortly in Galatians chapter 3. But note the themes that are dealt with here, verse 7. There is a theme of election. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abraham. There is a theme of separation. Brought us him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees. There is a theme of conversion. And give us him the name of Abraham. When the name changes, it's a sign that God has dealt with that individual. Jacob becomes Esau, Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul. Those chains of name are indicative of conversion. God is dealing with Abraham. And so you see, what does God do in an individual? Sovereignly chooses them, uh, not of any merit in themselves. Uh, this Abraham was a, a pagan idolater along with his fam family. But God sovereignly chose him in grace. Separate him from the world. Converted him. And gave him a faithful heart. Verse number 8. The gift of faith was given to Abraham. Whereby he's brought into the benefits of the covenant. God makes a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites. That beneficial covenant which includes redemption. 
Verse number 9 and 10, there is a description of the affliction of the fathers in Egypt. Out of this covenant comes redemption. Through blood, through sacrifice, the people are set free from darkness. These themes are all seen in the dealings of God with Abraham, whereby he's brought to his inheritance. He is given a land, he's promised a land, the land of the Canaanites. That promise that is to his seed. So through salvation, election, separation, conversion, there is the benefits of the covenant, there is redemption, and there is that inheritance. This is vital for the people now to pray, right in Nehemiah's time, that they've got to reflect upon these things. They're back in their land, the land that God has promised them. They can lay hold upon this covenant of promises, the promise given to Abraham and to his seed. Yet we should not think that God's dealings with Abraham is only for the Jewish nation. The covenant that God made with Abraham is a ground upon which we all can ask for blessing. The covenant dealings of God with Abraham is the ground whereby you can take that petition in verse number 32. Let not my affliction seem as a small thing, a little thing. So turn please to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 is the, again, it is the, the, the crucial chapter in the New Testament regarding the, the right of the Gentiles to plead the promises made to Abraham. You'll see there in Genesis 3, the verse number 16, that the promise to Abraham's seed is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and to thy seed, which is Christ. He fulfills the promise. He is the ultimate final son of Abraham that fulfills all of those promises. And due to our union with Christ, all believers are Abraham's seed. Look at verse number 29. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Through faith in Christ, we become the seed of Abraham and we actually come to be heirs of his promise. And you go back to verse number 7 of the chapter and you will see that the children of Abraham are those who have faith. Verse number 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Just in case there's any question or doubt in your mind, verse number 13 tells us that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We, Gentiles, are the children of Abraham. And over in Hebrews chapter 6, Again, Paul deals with the covenant that God made with Abraham. He deals with the fact that God swore by himself. But in verse 11, it says this, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the promises made to Abraham belong to us. Promises of Blessing. Promises made to the elect, redeemed believer who come to know faith in Christ. Promises that guarantee God's favor towards us. 
What right do you have to plead with God to favour you today? What right do you have to ask God to look upon your afflictions? You have the right that you're a child of Abraham. You have the right that God has promised to bless Abraham and fulfill all those promises ultimately that come to pass in the inheritance of the land, the new heavens and the new earth were in dwelt righteousness. But the blessing with God blesses Abraham, the promise is this, Hebrews 6:14, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. That was said to Abraham, but we're told in Galatians 3 and Hebrews 6. Not all those who through faith and patience, they all inherit the promises. God has sworn by himself because he can swear by no greaters. And so I believe that you have the right to plead that promise in prayer, privately, in your family and as a church. You have the right to plead that promise because God has placed you sovereignly into the benefits of that covenant. Now, those blessings can be yours. You understand this. You have a boldness in prayer, a boldness in faith, believing God's willingness, his determination to bless you. And in fact, the fact that if he does not bless you, he denies his own name, and that is not possible. So you have the God who sovereignly makes covenant. In the last place, you have the God who graciously keeps covenant. Verse 12 through to 21, in fact beyond, deals with the matter of God graciously keeping the covenant that he's made. The people enjoy God's presence, God's provision, and God's precept. As God persists in keeping his promise unto the possession. That's the structure really in light of those things. I've given you six Ps there. They've enjoyed God's presence. Verse number 12 Moreover, thou ledst them in the day by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go. And that matter of presence is taught then in verse number 19. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night. They knew the Lord's presence. The God who graciously, with manifold mercies, keeps his covenant, was with them. He does not forsake us. Why do you pray for God that your troubles should not seem little before him? Because he's promised to be with you. He will not forsake you. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. These are the promises of God. He provides for the people. Verse 15. Now he gives them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst. They see God's gracious keeping of his covenant by the provision that God makes for them in the manna and in the water that both speak of Christ in the New Testament. Reminding us again that God keeps covenant with us in that we, we come to his house. We sit under the word. We receive the elements of the sacraments. And we are reminded that God provides Christ for us. So that we need neither hunger nor thirst. For Christ provides for our spiritual well-being. He gives us, he gives them 
his precepts. Verse 13 and 14. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and speakest with them from heaven, and givest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. That's a mark of God's grace. God does not leave us to guess and to wonder how we should live for him. He tells us, this is the way, walk ye in it. If you choose not to walk in the way, that's to your own harm. That's a mark of God's grace that you do not need to wonder how you should live in this world. You don't need to debate or discuss it. It's clear, set down principles, line upon line, precept upon precept. Whereby in grace, God tells us, this is how you walk to please me. God gives them the gracious provision of his precepts. And so God persists in keeping his promise. Verse 16, but they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks, refused to obey. Their rebellion continues. But verse 17b, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and forsookest them not. Despite their sin, Verse 30, for many years did thou forbear them. They would not give ear. Verse 31, nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them nor forsake them. God persists in keeping his covenant. As individuals and as a church, there are times we suffer affliction due to our sin. And we may, we may imagine within ourselves that it's because of our affliction or because of our sins, sorry, that affliction has come, uh, therefore I cannot ask God to look upon my affliction. It's my own fault. I've brought it upon myself. What right do I have to ask God to look upon my affliction? It's all my doing. If the people in Nehemiah chapter 9 took that view, they would never have prayed. Our afflictions are often brought on by our own folly and by our own sin. But the grace of God is so incredible that he is willing to deal with our afflictions even though they're caused by our sin. That is mind-blowing. You catch a hold of that and you recognize that so many of your troubles are due to, to your sin or the sins of others and here's a God who's willing to hear your prayers and a God who's willing to step in and intervene a God who's willing that our trouble will not seem little before him. He's willing to deal with the things that trouble us, cause us turmoil of soul. Therefore, it is this God to whom we turn to in prayer. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified. Thank you.